Uh, thank you guys so much for being here today. It's good to have you. Uh, definitely want to welcome those of you who are tuning in online. Very grateful for you. Even if we've never met, uh, we really do hope and pray that uh, your connection to this church uh, online uh, makes you feel like you're part of this community uh, because you are. Definitely want to give a shout out to all the people outside underneath the tent. What's up? How you guys doing out there? Doing all right? Okay. We're assuming they said they're doing great. Hope you guys are doing good. And for those of you in the house this morning, we got nothing but love for you. Uh, my name is Daniel. I'm part of the team here at Eden Church, and uh, we're pumped. We're pumped about today, pumped that we get to be in service. Um, and I do want to say, if we have not had a chance to meet before, I'd love to meet you. Uh, I'll be at the Connect Center uh, just outside the doors of the auditorium. Love to get a chance to get your name and give you some information about the church, get to meet you. Um, do want to just follow up with Elizabeth said. We are so, so grateful for those of you who were able to make it out yesterday. Uh, if you made it out yesterday, I just have one question for you. How sore is your back? Okay, there are some of you who were doing a little bit more lifting than you should have. There are some of you like Joe who was showing off that he goes to the gym every day, okay? <laughs> Congratulations, Joe. We all know now, right? So, uh, but no, really, really grateful for you guys and uh, appreciate all the work that you did. It took so much effort. We had about 40 to 50 people out here yesterday clearing out this space. And, and the reason why that matters is because what we have found over the last year or so is every time we have cleaned out a space and fixed it up, God has used it for more ministry. And so we are trusting in faith that the work we started this Sunday, uh, I mean this Saturday, uh, is going gonna, is gonna to have benefits for us uh, and our community uh, in the years to come. So thank you so much for making it out. I also um, want to take a moment this morning to acknowledge uh, what all of us are probably aware of what's happening in the world and um, uh, uh, in, in Europe uh, between Ukraine and Russia. And, um, and, and we don't always make it a point to acknowledge certain, you know, all the crises that are happening around the world. But I think that this has been one that is so prevalent in our culture that it is worth us just taking a moment this morning to pause and to say a simple prayer. I don't make any sort of case that I, I, I'm uh, fully aware of all the circumstances uh, that are uh, influencing this situation, but I do know uh, that the very least that we can do and the very most that we can do is, is to bring uh, those two countries uh, to, to God in prayer. So let's take a moment to do that now. Father, we know that, that your hand is, is over this world, and we know that you see everything that is happening uh, in and around the world, and God, we lift up uh, the conflict that is happening in Ukraine between uh, the citizens of Ukraine and Russia. Lord, we, we know that this is not your vision for the world. And there are so many people right now that are living in fear, afraid for their lives. And God, we just ask, ask for your hand and your presence to influence that situation. We ask for protection for uh, Ukrainian citizens who are, are right there in the battlefield. God, children and, and innocent people Lord, we are asking that you protect and preserve their lives. And God, we pray that there would be an end to this war as soon as possible. And so, Lord, we ask uh, for your wisdom uh, to do our part, to continue praying, and anything else that you lead us to do beyond that, God. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing that's also helpful to be aware of is your generosity allows for us to partner with an organization that is sending relief to many of the refugees that are fleeing that country. So we partner with an organization called Send Relief, and so they have been active and on the ground in those areas, 
And, uh, and I just want to say thank you uh, that, that we have the opportunity to partner with them because of your generosity. Uh, so we're very, very grateful for that. Um, now today we are beginning a brand new series. If you're new with us, a series is just a collection of talks that we spread out over several weeks and we talk about a theme, a passage, or a topic from Scripture, and then we apply it uh, to our everyday lives. And, and this pattern has really served us well over the years because uh, what, our, what we do is we will look at Scripture and we will use it as a lens for the way that we relate to the world around us, the way that we navigate, help us to navigate uh, some of the, the circumstances that, that we're facing in our life. And, and the power of this is the application. It is so important that we are educated about things when it comes to Scripture that is of such huge value, but, but the value diminishes if we do not take the next step and we apply it to our lives. And so it is in the process of application that we see the power of the promises of God that we read about in Scripture unfold and oftentimes, many times, miraculously in our own lives. And so, so uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be in a new series and the prayers that we would apply these truths so that we can see God at work in our lives. Today, we're beginning a new series called Sea Rock. Sea Rock. That's so inspiring, but what does that mean? <laughs> Some of you have probably driven on the Pacific Coast Highway, right? AKA Highway 1. If you haven't, it's beautiful. And, uh, and as you drive south from the Bay Area on the Pacific Coast Highway, uh, it's this beautiful scenic road. Uh, road that runs along the coastline of California, but when you hit about a Big Sur area, you'll notice as you look off into the distance, there are these huge, massive rock-type islands that are piercing out of the ocean, and, um, and these are like these beautiful, beautiful rocks, and so I had heard a lot about Big Sur, but I'd never been, and so a few months ago, drove to Big Sur, and uh, I was all up in my feelings. I'm not going to lie, right? I was driving and never seen... Never seen Big Sur, and it was beautiful. Pulled over on the side of the road, sat on a cliff. The sun was setting. The wind was blowing. The waves were crashing on these rocks, and you could see the, the tide going in and going out. And I was all up in my feelings uh, having, having a moment by myself. It was wonderful. It made me think, am I an introvert? I don't know. <laughs> really enjoyed it. Uh, but it was powerful. And as you, as you kind of watch these rocks in the middle of the ocean, it, there's almost like an optical illusion where it looks like the rocks are moving, but it's really just the current moving around it. And, and I realized that, that these rocks actually have, have not moved. Like they have been stable in this location for hundreds and, and sometimes even thousands of years despite all of the movement that is happening around them. And so I thought, this, in a sense, is a picture of the type of life that the people of faith are required to have if they are going to be in a world, in the world, but not changed by the world. That this is the type of faith, the type of life that the people of faith are required to have if they're going to be in the world, but not changed by the world. And, and some of you may be asking the question, what is so wrong with the world? I like Santana Row. I like Maggiano's, right? I'm streaming Netflix like everybody else. I go to Phil's Coffee and pay too much for a cup. I go to Fogo de Chao every once in a while. I mean, I personally don't, but, um, but I'm saying you may. You, pay, you go to Crumble Cookie and, and pay 10 bucks for a cookie. 
right? You visit the world. What's so wrong with the world? And I think that that is a fair question because, because I agree. There is so much in our world that is beautiful and wonderful and representative of the image bearer that bears that God created us to be. There's so much goodness, so much to be admired. But at the same time that we love and admire things about the world, Scripture also gives us some warning about the world. This is what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person. And so Paul, the writer of the book of Romans, is not talking about the physical world. He's not talking about uh, uh, the, 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 the natural world, but he is talking about the spirit of the world. And when he talks about the spirit of the world, he's talking about a world and a culture that operate outside of a connection to God. And so he's warning us. He's saying that the world that, the world that is disconnected from God has values and behaviors and customs and perspectives that will lead to an outcome that is so much different than the vision that God has for your life. Another translation of this same verse says this. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. The word for pattern in this verse is referring to like a mold that you can press clay into and it creates an image. It says, do not conform to this pattern. And so what Paul is saying, in other words, is do not let the pressures of the counterfeit world or of its counterfeit worries or its counterfeit values cause you to conform to its image. Instead, it says, let God transform you. Another way of understanding this is let God form you. Let God's values form you. Let his behaviors form you. Let his habits and his wisdom and his type of thinking form you instead of allowing for the world that is disconnected from him to form you. And so my prayer in this series is that God would continue to form us as we are on the journey of faith together so that we can thrive in the type of culture and the type of world that we're living. And so today we begin a series called Sea Rock, Clinging to God When the World Doesn't Make Sense. And, and to do that, we're going to begin uh, in the Hebrew Bible, which is also known as the Old Testament. It's the first part of the Bible. And it talks about uh, the origin story of humanity and also the origin story of the Christian faith. And, um, and we're going to look at the true story of a man named Daniel who shows us how to thrive in a world that is disconnected from God. And, and I don't know about you, but I personally need these types of models in my life because uh, certain people have quick learning curves. You guys know Mark. He plays music on Sunday. But that guy does a lot of other things, and he learns like that, okay, quick. For me, my learning curve is very, very slow. So if I have a model to follow, it saves me trial and error time, okay? And, and if you've been on the journey and you live in the culture like the one that we live in, typically, as we are following Jesus, there are two types of temptations that people of faith fall into. The first is what we call separatism. And this happens when you live your life completely separated from the culture that you exist in. Everything happens within a subculture. You go to the Christian bookstore. You go to the Christian swim club. 
you only listen to Christian music and you only watch Christian movies and you only do the Christian streaming service and you only buy Christian clothes. And, and, and this is not anything to judge anyone about because the idea here is that you would remain faithful, that you would not be influenced uh, by the world around you. But, but the problem with this pattern is that it is really not the model of the New Testament because when you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus actually spent so much time with people who were disconnected from God. And he didn't try to get into like a holy huddle in every environment that he went into. And so the danger of separatism, if you are living a life of faith in a culture like this, like the one that we're in, is that you are so far removed from the culture that you don't have any relational influence over the people that need what you have. So that's the first temptation that we can fall into. The second temptation is what we call syncretism. Syncretism. This is where you have become so immersed in a culture. And the idea behind this is that you want to be a light in the world around you. But the problem that happens is that instead of you influencing people, you become influenced by the culture to the degree that you begin to undermine the values that have undergirded your faith. And so over time, what happens is you begin to adopt worldviews and values that begin to disconnect you from the life of faith that was once thriving in your life. It begins to deconstruct something that at one point in the past was valuable to you and you abandon it. And this is the beauty of the book of Daniel, is that it is going to show us how to live in a world without becoming influenced by the world. And so today, in a sense, as we jump into the conversation, is really the first half of a two-part message. Today, we're going to see how Daniel's culture tried to influence him. And then next week, what we're going to see is how Daniel was able to influence his culture. And so we're going to be reading in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. It says, During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylon, Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. And so we're introduced to a few individuals right now. Uh, introduced to Jehoiakim. He was the king of the southern uh, tribe of Israel, which was called Ju Judah. And one of the things that we know about Jehoiakim is he was like this ruthless, nasty, evil king. And it's interesting because Israel... Was, had always been set aside as a group of people that were intended to live out the ways and the purposes of God, and yet they had someone ruling over them that was so disconnected from God himself. And so he did this in about 600 B.C., and the worst part of his leadership was not his own spiritual poverty, but it was his ability to lead his, king, his country, his nation, into disobedience and disconnection with God. And eventually, it led to the, their downfall. There's a leader, a, 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 a saying that, go, that says, as the leader goes, so goes the organization. And so what we learn is that because of their disobedience to God, God allowed for them to be conquered by Babylon, which at the time was one of the most powerful kingdoms in the world. You had Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt. Now, Babylon had already conquered Assyria, and they wanted to conquer Egypt, but to conquer Egypt, they had to go through Israel. And so that's when they faced uh, Judah. And so they defeated them. 
And sometimes in the, these ancient battles, the way they understood defeat was that if you conquered a nation, it meant that you conquered their gods. And so they would take some of their religious uh, icons, some of their, their temple objects of worship, and they would take them into their own temple. But they also took the people. And part of the strategy of the Babylonians was to take the highest, uh, most elite part of the population and to cause them to assimilate into their own culture. And so this is what we see happening next in verse 3. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. And he says, Select only the strong... Mark uh, tells me that verse 4 is about him. Select only the strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. No, he didn't say that. He said, make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, that they're gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. And he says, train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens, and they were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Verse 6, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. And the chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. And so we're told that Daniel and three of his buddies were taken from Israel, brought to Babylon, when they were about 15 years old. And, and, and what we begin to learn as we understand like the Babylonian process of, of assimilation is they were not trying to educate Daniel and his friends about Babylonian culture. They were trying to make them become Babylonians. And, and as we look at this, this is like a highly sophisticated human engineering project. And so the first step was isolation. This is what they did. They took him from his home, and overnight, Daniel was literally trafficked about 700 miles from the safety and protection of his family and his friends and his country, and all of these components in his life would have represented his value system, where he was rooted relationally. This is where he learned to read the Torah. This is where his community taught him about faith. This is where he learned about the history of God's faithfulness to his people and in a moment, he was pulled out of that environment so that the values of his childhood would be easier to manipulate without those relational influences. And I wonder if you have ever noticed this in your life when you look at your pattern. That people who drift from faith often drift from the people of faith first. And this was my pattern. When I was in college, I moved into a, a house with a bunch of other athletes, and my roommate was a believer, happened to be a, a believer. And so that first Sunday that I was in this new city and new town, he brought me to church, and it was great because from that point on, I connected to several other people on my team who had some faith background, who were on the journey of faith just like me. But then there was a season in my college education where I began to test the waters of my faith. And I started branching out just a little bit. And this is what happened to me. I noticed as I reflect back on that time, I started to distance myself from the relationships 
who probably would have kept me accountable in my faith. And I remember this one particular night. There was about half, we had, we lived, I lived with five uh, college wrestlers. And, and you can imagine how disgusting our house was, okay? But half of the people, actually one other person in the house was a believer. This was one of my roommates. And the other four people were people who did what you do in college, right? You party, uh, you get drunk on the weekends, and uh, you do a lot of other things. And, uh, and I remember this one weekend, I decided I was going to go party with the homies. And this is what I did. I snuck out the side of the room because my Christian roommate and his friends were sitting on the couch chilling on a Friday night. And I didn't want them to see me going to this party. That is oftentimes part of the pattern, that we will drift from people of faith before we drift from our faith. And this is one of the most effective ways to influence others is to create a barrier between their strongest relationships. And we see that they did this with Daniel and his friends. They pulled him from his own culture and his own house and set him in a new area. The second thing that happened is they tried to indoctrinate him, right? It says that they were educated for three years. And it wasn't education as, it, as much as it was an attempt to indoctrinate. And for three years, they taught them about an alternative way of life. They reinvented history and they in, attempted to change the worldview of these people who had grown up in Israel. There was a man by the name of Joseph Goebbels. He was the chief minister of propaganda for Germany during World War II. And he had this really famous axiom. He said, if you repeat a lie often enough, it will become truth. If you repeat a lie often enough, it will become truth. And I think that there are so many people, myself included, that have adopted prominent sayings in our culture that we think sound good, but when we apply them to our lives, we realize that these things that we think are promises or think that are true don't actually lead us to the type of life that we want to get to. Sometimes these lies are promoted in like hashtags or memes, memes or things like that. I remember I was having a conversation with my son, and he was telling me, Dad, you can't disagree with my opinion. And I thought that was interesting. One, yes, I can. Um, I can disagree. But what he thought was an opinion was actually a statement he was making about a fact. And so I tried to help him. There's a difference between having an opinion and making a statement about facts. And, uh, and, and, and this happens all the time. There are some of us that have adopted a, a worldview or, or beliefs that says, we, I, I'm only going to do the things that make me happy. And I get where that comes from. That comes from a place where we are, are looking for satisfaction and fulfillment in our world. But at some point, that principle actually becomes a lie because it's not representative of the real world that we live in. If my son tells me all I want to do with my life are to do th the things that make me happy, he will lay in bed and literally play Subway Surfer for the rest of his life. Okay, And he will think from the bottom of his heart, the deepest truth inside of him, that that will actually make him happy. But the reality is that that habit in his life will actually make him miserable. And there are so many other things in our life that we have adopted as truths, but they're actually lies. And so there's indoctrination that, that happened for Daniel and his team for three years. They lived under training 
that sought to undermine so much of the values that they had learned and developed in their homeland. Number three, incentivization. They were allowed to keep 95% of their life, but when they moved to this Babylon culture, they were just being challenged in a few areas, and they were incentivized to like adopt these other cultural values. In verse 5, it says the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchen. Can you imagine that? Like these guys literally came as refugees and, and prisoners of war being trafficked from another country, and now they have the opportunity to eat the type of food that the king eats and to drink the wine that the king drinks. I don't know about you. I've been to a few nice restaurants in my life. A few nice restaurants in my life. And, and I'm not going to lie. Uh, it was impressive, right? The meat is different. The meat is different as, uh, when you compare it to the meat that you get at uh, El Pollo Loco. Now, that's good food, okay? But there are levels to the quality of food that you eat. And, and there was incentive for them. Because they were trying to convince them to adopt a way of life that seemed appealing. And I think that this would have been a temptation for Daniel. I think that this would have been a moment for him that, that would have, he would have questioned, is this worth the compromise? Can you imagine being able to take a selfie with the king of Babylon? Can you imagine what that would have done to his platform? Can you imagine uh, the story and the amount of YouTube followers he could have gained with with the story that he had, it would have been amazing. It would have been the best thing for his brand. And, and sometimes these things are compelling and cause us to want to compromise. And so they incentivize him. But the fourth thing they did is they tried to change his identification. They tried to change their identity. It tells us in verse 7 that they took their Hebrew names, the names that attached them to their God, and they tried to give them Babylonian names. And that is so consistent with what our culture does so often, is that it tries to redefine our identity outside of what God says who we are. But this is the beautiful part of what we see happening in Daniel's life. As much as they tried to change Daniel, as much as they tried to disorient him, we see that Daniel was not willing to compromise. Look what it says in verse 8. It says, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to him by the king. Because what the king was asking him to do was outside the bounds of his values and convictions. And it seemed so small, but what Daniel recognized was that compromise in one area of his life would probably lead to compromise in other areas. You guys know what I'm talking about. You ever break your diet, and then when you eat that piece of cake, you all of a sudden don't feel like exercising that day too. And then when you don't exercise, you don't get the endorphins that give you the energy to get all the other work done that you're supposed to do. It's almost like this slippery slope. And he recognized that, that compromise in one area of his life could lead to compromise in others. And so he was unwilling, and he learned in that moment how to live with conviction. And I imagine that there are probably some of us today that are right there on the cusp of compromise in our life. Like there is some circumstance 
that you are facing, some situation that you're navigating through, and there's this pressure to compromise. Maybe it's your integrity. Maybe it is your character. Maybe it is a work environment that is calling you to put in more and more hours. And what you've realized is that no matter how many hours you put in, it doesn't seem like it's ever enough. And you're noticing that there's a disconnection between you and your spouse and your family. And you're compromising that value in your life. Or maybe you're being asked to do something that is asking you to overlook something that would bring into question your moral integrity. Or there are some of you that are having perhaps this habit in your life, this addiction in your life that is causing a compromise in your marriage. And the challenge for most of this is that for many of us, the type of compromise that we are facing probably never looks horrible. It's just one standard deviation from what we know is right. If you've grown up in the Bay Area, I grew up uh, out here, and my mom would take us to the beach uh, in the summertime. And, and we, we, we had this experience a number of times where we would go out into the beach, get out into the water, and we'd be playing for 20, 30 minutes. And then when we were done playing, we'd look back to the shore, and our mom was gone. And we thought, oh, my gosh, did mom leave us? But we realized my mom didn't leave. She didn't move. But the current had slowly caused us to drift away from where we had started. And that is how compromise works. Sometimes you don't even hardly notice that it's there. But you get busy at work, and you stop coming to church one week, and you think it's not a big deal because I'll come back and I'll jump in online or I'll catch up on YouTube, and that's fine because that happens. But then it becomes two weeks and then three weeks, and over time, you realize that you have gotten disconnected from the community of faith that helps you to ground your relationship with God. But I love Daniel's story. Because as appealing as everything was in his life, as much as everything was pushing him to become a Babylonian, as much opportunity as he, as he would have, he did not compromise. He drew the lion. And he stood strong on small things. And what we learn in this story is that he didn't do it in a disrespectful way. Because he realized that in his life, he had to live within the rules of society. But he did it with wisdom. And we're told that he approached the leading official in his life. And he persuaded him to allow him to live by his own diet. And the official allowed him to do that, and he promised that he would exceed the expectations. And this is what we find out at the end of the chapter in verse 18. It says, when the training period that was ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar, and the king talked with them. And no, no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any manner requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them 10 times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in the entire kingdom. And Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. And so what this passage is telling us is that if you want to make a difference, you've got to be willing to be different. 
And when we look at the story of Daniel over the next several weeks, we are going to learn that over the span of 70 years, Daniel went from becoming, being this refugee who was taken captive from his own land to becoming the second most powerful person in the known world. And there is not one account in his entire story that suggests that he ever compromised his faith. And it would have been so easy. And most of us can look at our life and think about all the times that we have chosen to compromise in little ways and watch how those little decisions sort of chipped away at our character and our integrity. And for many of us, we have been on this road and this journey trying to reclaim that life, that path that we were on. And so much of this has been a result of the shifting culture that we have lived in. That we have adopted values from people who have no, have no right to be speaking at the table of our wisdom. And we have seen what that produces in our life. And we believe that sometimes in a culture like the one that we're living in, the only way to thrive is to compromise our values. But what I love about the book of Daniel is it shows us that there's a better way. It's a harder way. It is a more challenging way. Oftentimes, it will cause you to stand against what all of your friends think. It will cause you to stand alone in isolation from others at times. But what is so powerful about Daniel's story is that the moment he chose to draw a line in the sand was the same moment that God began to elevate him in his influence. And I don't know where you are at in your life right now. And I don't know what compromises you're facing, but I imagine in a room this size, most of us are facing a compromise. What I want to encourage you today is to choose the path less traveled, to choose the road of character and conviction, and to let God be faithful in your life. Because I promise you that if we as a church and a community of faith are not willing to be different, we will never be able to make a difference. It is that distinction in our life that God uses to be a witness in the world around us. And the more that we try to conform to the values and the habits and the behaviors and the patterns of people who are disconnected from God, the more that our life will follow their same path. And as much as that can look good on the outside, there is no life or peace or hope outside of a connection to God. And there are some of you this morning, some of you this morning that have shown up in this place that have been running down that path for years and you've been exploring every little avenue, searching and seeking out hope. And what you're realizing is that the more you compromise, the more that you begin to give up the type of life that God died so that you could have. And this morning, I want to invite you, if you have never stepped into faith or into a relationship with God, to consider doing that today. 
to consider stepping into faith and receiving the hope and the life that comes as a result of a relationship with him. And scripture tells us that it is a simple step of faith. It is not easy, but it is simple. And the decision is to trust that God can do more with your life than you can. To trust that God can do more with your heart than you can. That God can do more with your energy and your happiness and your purpose and your meaning than you can. And to give it to him. And so this morning, if that's where you're at, I want to invite you to pray this simple prayer. There's nothing special about these words, but it's about whether or not these words are a reflection of the condition of your heart. Are you tired of trying to figure it out on your own? And are you willing to release your heart into the hands of God so that he could give you the peace that you have been searching for but have never experienced? If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer in your heart after me. I'm going to ask for everyone to bow their heads and to close their eyes. And if this morning you want to begin a relationship with God and open up your heart to the promise that he has for you, I want you to pray this simple prayer after me. Dear God, I thank you for your love. And I don't know how I ended up in a room like this today. But all I know is that you love me and you care for me even when I did not know that you were there. And this morning, I want to receive the gift of your love that you provided through the sacrifice of your son so that when his life and his blood was shed, it cleansed me from all of the hurt and all of the pain and all of the regret and all of the shame that I live with in my head and in my heart every day. And today, God, I want to receive the peace and the type of life that comes from you. I ask, God, that you would give me the strength to follow you in the days to come. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning. And I want to encourage those of you, if you prayed that prayer in your heart, would you quickly raise your hand up in the sky and let us know that you made that decision this morning to step into faith for the very first time. If you're watching online or you're tuning in outdoors, uh, feel free to raise your hand. We have leaders out there that can acknowledge uh, the decision that you made this morning. If you're tuning in online, uh, go ahead and press the button in the chat and let our leaders know there that you've made that decision. They'd love to get you some resources to help you to continue to walk in your relationship with God. Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for the work that you're doing in this community as you're moving hearts every week, changing us and forming us. And God, so often we recognize that we are living in a culture sometimes that doesn't always align with your values. And it is so easy to compromise how we think about things and how we, how we understand the world around us. But God, we are praying that you would give us a vision to live an uncompromised, conviction-filled life around the things that matter most so that we can be the type of light in our community that you have positioned us to be. Father, we thank you for your love, and we thank you for the hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.